Reformed and Confessional exists to promote Reformed confessionalism, to proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture, and to extol the supremacy of Christ over all things. I'm Nick Myers. And I'm John Fry. Thank you for joining the Reformed and Confessional podcast in a day where we are previewing the Ten Commandments. Nick, great to see you. Always good. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, Nick and I are 15 time zones apart, so it's certainly good to see you, brother. And today, we want to just acknowledge that in our last episode, we discussed family worship. We discussed the directory for family worship or for private worship. And we will come back to that. We'll probably break up this series today. We'll preview the Ten Commandments. And then we'll devote an individual episode to each of the Ten Commandments. And we'll break that series up by going back and visiting that directory for private worship with a little more depth so that you can receive help in family worship. So what we want to do right now is let you know we didn't forget that, but also pave the path for what's going to come at you for the next several months. The first thing that Nick and I, you know, we think it's wise to do is to go ahead and explain some of our covenantal distinctives, because ultimately today we're going to conclude with the fact that the moral law is still relevant and it is still binding for the Christian believer in the new covenant. To get there, we want to start really and discuss uh, covenant theology. And Nick comes at this from a little different perspective than I do. Nick, a Presbyterian perspective, myself, a Baptist perspective. However, again, one of the goals of our blog, of this podcast, is to display Reformed solidarity. And so we respect each other's opinions. Uh, We have talked about them um, at at length, and we I, I think we understand one another. We think it's wise, so sometimes you may hear Nick say something and me say something. If you're a Presbyterian, what I'd say, you know, might not align with you and vice versa. But you understand that we come at this a little bit differently in terms of covenant theology, but we still respect one another, and our goal is to show reform solidarity. So Nick's going to go ahead with his perspective. That's, I think, a really important thing to keep in mind is that what we're trying to do Uh, just like you were saying, John, is that despite the fact that, you know, I am a Presbyterian, uh, I adhere to the 1646 Westminster Confession. uh, One of the things that we're really trying to showcase here that I think, at least least from my perspective, has been lost to some degree is, uh, right, the reform solidarity that we've discussed before. And what I've, I guess, cutely termed a faithful or reformed ecumenicism. None of the uh, the liberal ecumenicism or things where people have ultimately left the faith or have been less than faithful to the scriptures, but where we come at this from the reformed tradition and we do not, we don't walk away from our distinctives, but we recognize the places where we have major agreement, which is, which is frankly, the majority of theology, and we walk faithfully with each other through those things and with those things for the promotion of the gospel, and for the with the desire that all men would bend their knees to to Jesus Christ, and and despite the fact that we might have differences in covenant theology or or some places in ecclesiology or or uh, you know eschatology that we're 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 keeping the main thing the main thing and we're walking smartly with each other for the promotion of it. So as far as the the Westminster Confession goes some of the things that we would see that might be in a little bit of a contrast or difference from our 1689 uh counterparts would be and, and I think probably the biggest one is the covenant of grace and how we would define that, how we would outline that, where we see it beginning and the veracity of, of where it begins. We see the covenant of grace, the actual covenant, not, not a promise of it or a shadow of it, but the actual covenant beginning in Genesis 3.15 where, where God promises to Adam and Eve a savior to come from her seed to crush the head of the serpent. We see, we, you know, Presbyterians, Reformed Presbyterians, 
see that the covenant of grace begins there and carries through all the way to the new covenant. And it has what my pastor has a very, I think, aptly called various exfoliations, like a flower with, with multiple petals exfoliating throughout the ages. And so you have the the covenant with Noah, you have the covenant with David, etc. And then and then you have the final exfoliation of the of the new covenant with Christ. But all of it is the covenant of grace. And in all of this, you have Christ as the substance of that covenant, offering salvation to those who are faithful, to those who would confess their sins and repent and turn to Christ, turn to the Savior, turn to God uh, for salvation. And one way that that it's been described is that when we come to the new covenant, and 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 again, this is from my perspective. When we come to the new covenant, we we are seeing a room that is fully lit, and whereas that room contains chairs and and couches and pictures and lampstands and you know hutches and you know bookshelves, but in the old covenant those weren't all clearly perceived. So we have the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the final exfoliation of the new covenant with Christ. In each of those Old Testament exfoliations, you have more and more light being given to to reveal more of what's in the room, metaphorically speaking. Um, and so when we come to the new covenant, we see that the, the the room is fully lit in Christ. We see all the things clearly. We're given the full uh, revelation, and um, you know everything is complete now. And we can talk about revelation at some other time, progressive revelation, and, and how that works throughout the ages. But um, as it pertains to this, so we would see that all of that was the covenant of grace, and uh, that there was the promise of Christ in all of that. Christ was the Savior of anyone who was ever saved. And and I'm just going to read, there's a section here in the Westminster Confession that uh, is is different from the 1689, but it's chapters uh, 4 and 5. And this might be a good way to articulate some of the, our distinctives. It says, uh, so this is, uh, this is chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession, paragraphs 5 and 6. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law, so this is the covenant of grace, and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people and the Jews, all foresignifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Paragraph 6. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. And that last line there, there are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, the substance being Christ, but one and the same under various dispensations. That would be a point of difference. Um insofar as, you know, John and I would be concerned. Um, but like John said, these differences, while while debatable and while uh, they can, um, you know, they do unfortunately divide to some degree, they don't, they don't make us look at the gospel differently. They don't make us look at the commandments differently or, or faithfulness in Christ differently. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, where I would hang my hat for now on the distinctives of the 1646 position on covenant theology. What do you think, John? Yeah, thank you, Nick. Uh, I think you did a good job there articulating uh, succinctly for the listener 
your position on that, a position that I have heard before, certainly. Uh, I say that with a <laughs> smile on my face. Uh, what I would say, first of all, I want to encourage, uh, you know, someone who would label themselves as a Presbyterian or Reformed Baptist, having a friend who doesn't believe exactly like you do, someone who's faithful to the Lord, but like I have a Nick, it has certainly uh, been something that has refined me and helped me um, strengthen my position and sometimes alter it or sharpen it. Well, we, we've refined each other, brother. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so with that, uh, I would just say from my position, uh, as Nick has said, what it, what it often on its face, the difference looks like, you know, who do you baptize? Pedo, credo, baptism. But really, when you trace that back and you keep pulling the string, our difference, mm. as Nick has said, would be how we view the covenant of grace. And so the question becomes is what would be the 1689 view of the covenant of grace. And mm-hmm. I think as, as Nick read, you know, or, or alluded to in both the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, there is great solidarity there, specifically with, uh, you know, within the London Baptist Confession, chapter 7, paragraphs 1 and 2 are really close to the same. And then the disagreement is more of the omission of parts of the Westminster and then the inclusion of paragraph 3, which I will, uh, I'll talk, I'll read just a, a little bit of it in just a moment. But basically, as Nick has said, you know, from his perspective, there would be different administrations. And I'll just label them the old and the new. So rather than seeing an old administration of the covenant of grace and a new administration of the covenant of grace, I would I would categorize the various covenants in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic covenants, as subservient to the covenant of grace and distinct from the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace simply being we're saved by grace alone. And I would even affirm that that is seen in places like Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And those individual covenants, they have distinct contents and sanctions, and they have differences from one another. But what they all function to do is to point to and to serve the covenant of grace, which eventually would fulfill all of those covenants. The covenant of grace not being conditional, but certainly being unconditional and if I could summarize it, rather than there being multiple administrations of the same covenant, you know, the 1689 position would just say that there's one covenant of grace and it's revealed by farther or progressive steps within each covenant. So with that, I will read uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 7, and just the first portion of paragraph 3. It says, This covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So, again, first of all, to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, that's the recognition of Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, and the subsequent verses, and afterwards by farther steps. And that's the progressive portion that I had mentioned previously, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So, Christ being there as mystery and shadow, and not as substance, until it was completed. The full discovery, therefore, was completed in the New Testament. I guess the way that I would that I would say it, and this is just kind of a maybe, you know, Nick and I have discussed many times continuity, and I've heard some people I've heard some people say, you know, Presbyterian argues to the Baptist, you know, you're not considering the Old Testament, and the Baptist argues to the Presbyterian, you're not considering the New Testament. But I, I would say this, this is just kind of uh, my reflections. I, I view, personally, the covenant of grace differently, obviously, and I've, I've tried to articulate that here. I don't see each covenant as a singular covenant of grace. Instead, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic, and Davidic covenants are the quote-unquote farther steps. And... They are subservient to the covenant of grace, which is fully discovered in the New Testament, in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And then in terms of continuity, I think that, you know, this is just my experience in reading and talking and, uh, and listening and trying, trying, to be, trying to be quick to listen and slow to speak. But I think that there is an accusation 
that maybe there's a discontinuity. And, and where I see a great deal of continuity is that God, especially with Abraham, you know, God had promised Abraham, there's covenant promises there, and then you look at the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then we think of how these covenants are fulfilled. Well, they're all fulfilled in Christ. And, you know, with the Mosaic covenant, Christ perfectly kept the law to, you know, righteously, perfectly, and imputed that to us. And then the Davidic covenant, Christ is the seed who is on the throne forever. And then just briefly, the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham and promised to bless him, to make him a great nation from him. And then you have Jesus and his incarnation and his perfect life and death and resurrection ensured the salvation of many. His inauguration of the new covenant ushered in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to all believers. You see in the book of Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul reveals that those who possess the Holy Spirit through faith they're counted as the offspring of Abraham, thus simultaneously providing the population of the great nation promised to Abraham and the blessing to all nations, which is the gospel going to the ends of the earth. I see a great amount of continuity between testaments there. And then lastly, I would say, you know, when it comes to continuity with this, what it eventually results in is a discussion of who should be baptized. I think that there is a great deal of continuity in that those who were born to ethnic Israel received the sign of circumcision. And in the New Testament, those who are born again are referred to as infants, and they receive the sign of baptism. And I think that that comparison, it, should, it displays a great level of continuity and reserves baptism to believers only. But again, like I had said, there is a great deal of continuity, uh, especially when you look at the London Baptist Confession chapter 7, paragraphs 1 and 2, with the Westminster Confession of Faith. And with that, I think now is a good time to remind you of our goal. You know, we're not, we're not even, we agree, you know, we're not going to go into necessarily why we believe what we believe, but just try to describe what we believe. So they understand where Nick comes from as we talk about today, covenant theology, and then the future, the Ten Commandments. But, but where we're really going here is that we both affirm covenant that that god interacts with man through covenant if i can just i just want to add one more thing just <laughs> when when there's times when we don't agree i it's our prayer that what you'll hear is uh is gracious responses to those things like maybe you know i'll say like yeah no i understand that you see it that way this is how i see that but there won't be sharp dissension or division between us you know we've been talking about this stuff for literally years and now we're just taking all the stuff we've talked about for the and we're recording it <laughs> just as a quick note and then I'll, and I'll move on so i get the i have the privilege of being living near rpts the reformed presbyterian theological seminary going to church with a lot of people who are professors there and also counseling there and that school has historically taught more Baptists than Presbyterians. And now they don't shrink back from, from RP doctrine and things like that. But, but one thing that they do is they say, you know, if you're coming through the school as a Baptist and you want to leave a Baptist, you're going to be, you're going to be hardened and you're going to leave a better Baptist than you came in. And I, I've always, I just love that line. I've always remembered when I was told that years ago, because that's what it is, right? When, you're, when your theology is tested and you have to figure out why you believe what you believe, you either change your mind or you get better. You know? And that's what I've seen in John and, and hopefully myself where we've, we've uh, ruffled each other's feathers enough to, <laughs> to have hopefully gotten better. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. So now we're going to transition and Nick is going to go ahead and just give us a good definition for covenant theology yeah. and what we're going to do then is walk through and look at some other mm -hmm. theological frameworks that we can uh, discuss and maybe maybe we even say why we wouldn't agree with those and then what we'll do is just ask the question is the moral law still relevant and if so then we ought to then we ought to know it well and seek to live it out so with that, Nick, the big question today, what is covenant theology? All right, so what I'm going to read, because they've said it, they've said it already, I don't need to reinvent the wheel, is the, the 
explanation of covenant in the Reformation Study Bible. But before I do that, basically a covenant theology is is a framework through which we look at the scriptures. You know, you have, there's all sorts of different ones uh, just right off the top of my head and probably pretty popular ones. You have dispensationalism, which I am sure most people have heard of. Uh, you have new covenant theology, but this is, uh, but they're just, they're frameworks. They're not necessarily like doctrines proper, like we would think of when we open up systematic theology, but it's a, it's a way to view the scriptures, a way to read the scriptures. And so uh, let me read this real fast. So the basic structure of the relationship God establishes with his people is the covenant. A covenant is usually thought of as a contract where there sh- while there surely are some similarities be- between covenants and contracts, there are also important differences. Both are binding agreements. Contracts are made from somewhat equal bargaining positions and both parties are free not to sign the contract. A covenant is likewise an agreement. However, Covenants in the Bible are not usually between equals. Rather, they follow a pattern common to the ancient Near East Caesarean vassal treaties. Caesarean vassal treaties, as seen among the Hittite kings, were made between a conquering king and the conquered. There was no negotiation between the parties. And I think that's a, let me just stop right there. I think that's a, a good point to make. And we see this with Abraham exceptionally clearly. Let me pull this up here. Yeah, so so you see this with Abraham in Genesis 15. So he commands Abraham. He says, bring me a heifer. In verse 9, he says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he didn't cut, he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came on the carcass, Abraham drove them away. As the verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they will serve, etc. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land for the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, etc. Now, what do we see here? I think it's good to stop and, and just say, what do we see? We see Abraham bringing and offering a sacrifice. The, the animals are cut in two and laid, uh, laid on either side of each other. And, Abraham is caused to go into a deep sleep. So Abraham not only isn't making the covenant with God, but he's also, he's passed out, right? He is, he is not even part of this. And then in verse 17, we see a theophany. We see, we see a, a circumstance where God reveals himself. And this time he reveals himself as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. And that, and that theophany passes through those pieces, essentially saying, if I fail to keep this covenant, let let be done to me what has happened to these animals. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, just like, just like they wrote here in the Reformation Study Bible, the Caesarean vassal treaty was between a conquering king and the conquered. And we see this Abraham, that we see this covenant with Abraham, which I would call the covenant of grace. We see this covenant being made with Abraham and it is one-sided. This is a covenant completely based on the faithfulness of God and Abraham doesn't have a pardon. This covenant, so, so in other words, what, what's happening, this covenant can't be broken. This covenant is, God is making this covenant unilaterally with Abraham. I think that's important to, to recognize. They go on, the first element of these covenants is the preamble which lists the respective parties. Exodus 20 verse 2 begins with, I am the Lord your God. God is the Caesarean. The people of Israel are the vassals. The second element is the historical prologue. This section lists what the Caesarean or Lord has done to deserve loyalty, such as bringing the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. In theological terms, this is the section of grace. In the next section, the, Lord's, the Lord lists 
what he will require of those he rules. In Exodus 20, these are the Ten Commandments. Each of the commandments were considered, were considered morally binding on the entire covenant community. The final part of this type of covenant lists blessings and cursings. The Lord lists the, the benefits that he will bestow upon his vassals if they follow the stipulations of the covenant. An example of this is found in the fifth commandment. God promises the Israelites that their days will be long in the land, long in the promised land, if they honor their parents. The covenant also presents curses should the people fall in their responsibilities. God warns Israel that he will not hold them guiltless if they fail to honor his name. The basic pattern is evident in God's covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and the covenant between Jesus and his church. In biblical times, covenants were ratified in blood. It was customary for both parties to the covenant to pass between disassembled animals, signifying their agreement to the terms of the covenant. We have an example of this kind of covenant in Genesis 15, like I, like I just read. Here, God made certain promises to Abraham, which were ratified by the sacrificing of animals. The new covenant, the covenant of grace, was ratified by the shed blood of Christ upon the cross. At the heart of the covenant of God's promise is redemption. God has not only promised to redeem all who put their trust in Christ, but has sealed and confirmed that promise with a most holy vow. We serve and worship a God who has pledged himself to our full redemption. So, as we think of covenant theology, what we're really trying to do is see how God has been consistently redemptive throughout all of history, the means by which he's gone to do that, and the, the, the particularities that we see required of his people as they are told how to be faithful to this redeeming God. Yeah, that, that is the, the heartbeat of covenant theology. And there is a, there's just kind of an appeal that I would like to make. On our website, there is an article titled Calvinism, A Gateway to Covenant Theology. And that's where I make the argument, basically, that there are people who are Calvinists, but they do not embrace covenant theology. And my appeal is that when you, especially a Calvinist, believing in unconditional election, when you look at what God did from among all the nations, you look at Genesis chapter 11 and 12, at that time, it wasn't just Abraham. There were other people, other clans, other tribes, other nations, we'll call them, other lands. And God chose Abraham from mm -hmm. among all of them. And that's what God did. And my appeal is that for anyone who would believe in unconditional election, but not recognize that that's what happened in the Abrahamic covenant, to please reconsider. <laughs> and there's more to it than that. Um, but, you know, that's just one point. And what I really wanted to refer to that to is there, I think there's a good deal of Reformed solidarity shown. Uh, we define covenant. And we, we use the Baptistic, you know, example, Pastor Samuel Renahan, and a Presbyterian perspective from Jaunty Rhodes. And real quick, the, the books referenced in this article from the Baptist Understanding of Covenant Theology, a book titled The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant and His Kingdom by Samuel Renahan. And then for the Presbyterian Understanding would be the book Covenants Made Simple, Understanding God's Unfolding Promises to His People by John T. Rhodes. Both, I, I would say, whatever persuasion, you know, 1646, 1689, both are good and helpful. And, and each man defines covenant, and of course, what I'm about to share with you is baseline, but it's something that you can put in your mind, moving forward, reading your Bible, talking among your friends and believers, and maybe people that believe like you or don't. Uh, but, but Pastor Samuel Renahan defines covenant simply as a guaranteed commitment. And John T. Rhodes describes the word covenant as, quote, a conditional promise. And so... I think that's a very concise way uh, to, de to define and understand what Nick has just read and explained for us. But for me, when you look at guaranteed commitment, when you look at a conditional promise, you're looking at covenant. And if you survey your Bible, you see all throughout it, God deals with his people through covenant, the immutable God, the Lord our Savior, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, continually covenants with his people. There's a covenant of works with Adam. We see with Noah in the Noahic covenant. The Lord establishes covenant with him in Genesis chapter 9. 
a covenant with Abraham, as Nick has already mentioned. We see a covenant with Moses. We see that uh, in the book of Exodus. You can look at chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. It says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. A covenant with David, referred to as the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And then we have the church. You know, think of places like the Lord's Supper, when Jesus said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So from the very beginning, with Adam, all the way to today, and the new covenant in the church, the Lord deals with his people through way of covenant, or guaranteed commitments, or conditional promises. And it's for these reasons, the the repetition, the perpetuity of covenant in our Bibles, why we think that this is a reliable framework, something that is verifiable through exegesis. That's right. So Nick, with that, is there anything you'd like to add before we move on? No, I think for our purposes, that's perfect. And and ultimately seeing that it's not about, it isn't ultimately about theology and it isn't ultimately about the theology of this. It isn't ultimately about uh, well, how many covenants are there, and you know what's the stipulations of each? But and of course those things matter. But it's about seeing the God who's made the covenant with us to bring us to Himself, and how we then respond in in humility because of His mercy. That's hopefully where we land. Thank you for adding that. And and on that point of humility, uh, that's. A good segue, because now uh, we want to discuss uh, a theological framework that is in opposition uh, to covenant theology, and we want to have humility as we do that, and that would be dispensationalism. And we want to be gracious. Uh, We want to affirm that there are brothers that we will inherit the kingdom of God with who adhere to dispensationalism. Uh, So right now, I just want to kind of preview that and you know, give some distinctives and do my best to do that. And then also what we will think about and contemplate is the consequences of dispensationalism. Remember where we're going. We're asking, is the moral law still relevant today? So dispensationalism as a system deals with God's relationship to man. And there are different dispensations. And what's very interesting in the context of this conversation as that some folks have taken dispensationalism and tried to harmonize it with covenants. And rather than, uh, from my perspective, seeing the string of continuity throughout all of the covenants, they would identify each covenant as God working with mankind in different periods of time in different ways, we could say. And so... To highlight, uh, now I do have a friend that had called, you know, he, he had mentioned this, and, and I want to just say this friend is, he's not Reformed, and I have friends that aren't Reformed, and I that's okay, he is a brother. And I would say that he made mention of uh, a third party, someone who I don't know, and he called them a hyper-dispensationalist. So what I'm about to present is certainly not blanket coverage for what every person who adheres to dispensationalism would believe, but just for our audience to kind of understand that there are different ways people look at the Scripture other than through covenant theology. And the first dispensation commonly referred to is the dispensation of innocence, period of Adam and Eve in the garden. And that, you know, of course, then there's the fall. And the second dispensation is called the dispensation of conscience from the time of Adam and Eve you know, leaving the garden up until the flood and leading to a third dispensation, often referred to as human government. And you can you know, see that in Genesis chapter 8. God destroys life on the earth through the flood. He saves Noah to restart the human race. And then, and then the thought process is once God raises up different people and nations and cultures, human government comes into play. Fourthly, dispensationalists would identify a dispensation of promise started with Abraham and continuing on up until the Jewish people crossed the Red Sea out of Egypt, going to Sinai, right up into Exodus chapter 20. And then there would be a fifth dispensation called the Dispensation of Law. And this is, of course, the Ten Commandments. The dispensation involved 
the temple worship and the priests and the prophets as well. This goes right up into the sixth dispensation, which is said where we now live, a dispensation of grace, beginning in the new covenant with Christ. And there's differing views on when they would specifically identify when the new covenant would start. Some would say the incarnation, some would say the resurrection, some would say with the Lord's Supper, some would say Pentecost and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But they would also say that that is the dispensation that we live in now and that there is a seventh dispensation, the millennial kingdom of Christ. It is my observation that most dispensationalists are also pre-millennialists. And I think that the biggest thing for the purpose of covenant theology that we could identify right now is a big presupposition of dispensationalism is the distinction between the church and Israel. And a quick bit of autobiography, if I can, that's really when I was embracing, I had embraced the doctrines of grace and Calvinism, the next hurdle for me was Israel and the church. And then once, you know, the Lord graciously helped me see, and my mind was made up on that, Reformed theology and covenant theology was the way ahead, and I'm thankful for that. But my my appeal would be the teaching in Romans 11, and my view would not be that Israel and the church are treated distinctly and different, but that the church fulfills Israel. I don't think that the church replaces Israel. I don't think that the church is distinct from Israel. I think the appropriate word is that the church fulfills Israel. And I had mentioned that earlier. God makes a promise of this innumerable offspring. Now, from a Baptist perspective, I think that the new covenant people are born again infants or new believers. And they fulfill that promise made to Abraham. And in that way, that's really our trajectory of uh, where we're going with asking the question about the moral law. So yeah, that's just a really brief overview of dispensationalism. Nick, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, just real quick, just to tag on what you just said. Um, and we can see how uh, somebody who maintains a dispensational view could slip into what's known as antinomianism, right? They no law. You know, um, we don't have to obey the law. We, we obey the law of Christ now, which is which is something entirely different, which is just all grace. And uh, we can just do whatever we want, live however we want. Um, there's no commands to, to be obedient to anymore. That's a really, it's a very dangerous position because Christ says many times, if you love me, you'll obey me. John, in his, in his first epistle, says those who love the Lord obey his commandments and they're not burdensome to him. And so if you're an antinomian, you really have to wrestle with those passages and ask yourself, well, what are the commands that I'm that I'm to obey that aren't burdensome? And the other thing, so anyway, so so I'm not saying that dispensationalists by default fall into that into that group, but you can see how that can happen. And then the only the only last thing, and John hit on this, is is the way that covenant theology vice dispensationalism sees Israel. And you hit on this a little bit, is that it sees them as two completely different people with two completely different destinies, future destinies. Whereas Israel is an earthly one relating to the land and to the temple and to the, and the church is a spiritual one relating ultimately to heaven. Whereas covenant theology sees that God has always had one people. And in the Old Testament, they were called Israel. And in the New Testament, they're called the church. Now, personally, I would take the liberty and say that, that God has had a church and then in the Old Testament, we see words like congregation or the assembly, and then that was still his church, which was mixed. But but in the New Testament, we see, and now, now what's interesting is when you come to Romans 11, you see Paul desirous for his kin to be saved, which of course makes sense. He loves them. He wants them to be saved. But we would still maintain that all those who are saved, whether they're ethnically Israel, ethnically Jewish, or otherwise, it is through salvation in Christ redemption in Christ and not this if you're a Jew you get this and if you're not a Jew you get Christ in heaven we don't we wouldn't maintain that 
Yeah, I think what you've just said there uh, is a great compliment. And we, we just wanted to recognize, you know, there is there's another school out there we won't really discuss today called New Covenant Theology, and you can look that up if you'd like. But what, what we really ultimately hope to do today is just show that God works all throughout his Bible and relates to people through covenant. And with that, the Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Covenant relate to people today in the New Covenant. And the way that we view, specifically the Mosaic Covenant, the way that we view the Ten Commandments would be a manifestation of God's character. And we often refer to it as the moral law. The Ten Commandments being the moral law, we would say that Jesus, as he would, he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that he did not abolish this moral law, he came to fulfill it. And certainly, not even just the moral law, but he fulfilled the entirety of the law. He perfectly obeyed it, and he was righteous. In Isaiah 53, we look in the book of Romans, this is the righteousness of Christ through obedience to God, and thank him for his imputation of that righteousness to us. So we see that it is Christ, when he says he's fulfilling the law, not abolishing it, we make the observation that all throughout, of course, the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament and in the portions of the New Testament that are the New Covenant, the Ten Commandments are never done away with. They are as binding from Adam to Abraham to Moses and the people on Sinai as they are to Nick and I and to each of you today. So again, we, we've kind of discussed our distinctives. Hopefully that was foundational and gives you some context of what we're saying. We've taken a look at the definition of covenant and covenant theology, and we've also discussed dispensationalism. But keeping in mind that next episode, we're going to talk about the first commandment. Why? Why would we want to do that? So the way that we want to get there is to ask this question, Nick, is the moral law still applicable today? And if so, tell us why. Yeah, and that's really the, the $80 million question. We are convinced that we are saved by the merits of Christ, not by our works, right? Salvation is not of works. We don't obey the law to get salvation. James says, whoever fails, <laughs> oh man, whoever fails to keep the law in one point is guilty of all. So, I mean, think just... All right. Well, you know, as when you were a seven-year-old and you didn't honor your parents, guess what? You're guilty of breaking the other nine commandments. You're going to hell. <laughs> just that's just that's just the way that's just the way it shakes out. So we rely on Christ, but that doesn't mean that the law is useless. Now, the reality is, many there's there is so much literature on this. I mean, I'm trying to read through Burkhoff and Turretin and read through G.I. Williamson about this kind of stuff and see what they have to say, and it's just it's just it's far too much to just bring into this podcast. So for our purposes here, so I would just I would just urge the reader to go and look up those resources. And we'll put these things in the show notes as well. But so basically the law, now as it stands, has three major functions. Okay. And they call it the threefold use of the law. And the first use is for the uh, is is to be used as a mirror. All right, so Augustine wrote, The law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. All right, now think about this. So James, in chapter 1 of his epistle, verse 23, writes, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face, in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so what's James saying there? James is saying, when you look into the law and you see that it says, you know, don't commit adultery, don't be covetous, uh, honor your mother and father, worship the, lo the Lord your God alone. And then you turn around and you go and don't do that. Uh, he's basically calling you a fool. Uh, he's calling you someone who looks intently at the law. And then like you look in a mirror and you turn around and you forget that you got a big freckle on your nose or that your eyes are blue. Like how ridiculous is that? 
you know, how can we as a people, people of the book, people of Christ clothed with him and his spirit indwelling us, how can we do that? Right. So that's really, that's really the, the, the picture there. So the first, the first use is the, is, is the law as a mirror. The second use is of the law is to restrain evil. Now we can get into uh, sphere sovereignty and things like that with the family and the church and the government. But one use of the law is to restrain evil. Calvin says, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for restitute and justice. Right? So he's saying the law is there to punish evil. And we see that in Romans 13. Oh, we see that in Romans 13 in verse 3. If rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Now, the question you have to ask is, what is good? How, what, what measuring rod do we use to determine what's good? What standard do we use? And it has to be, there's nothing else on Paul's mind when he writes this than the law of God. He's only thinking what is good is what, in, is what is in accordance with God's word. And what's evil is what is not according with God's word. And so we see that the law is used as a measuring rod for governments, for lawful authorities to restrain the evils of men, uh, which is a very good thing. And then the third purpose of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. John fourteen, fifteen, Jesus says very famously, if you love me, keep my commandments. If this is the highest function of the law to serve as an instrument for the people of God to give him honor and glory. So when we look at the law, we can't, we don't look at this as just being an antiquated thing. You know, we put it on the wall. We look at it sometimes. Oh, how cute. Uh, it's on, it's on two tablets of stone, but no, this is, these are, these are rules to live by. These are, these are laws that we try to inculcate into our lives and be obedient to not for salvation, but, but because we know that one, they represent the character of, of who our God is. And that by doing them, we show our love for, for God. And the other thing too is, as we talk about the law of God, right? So, so Israel had their civil law and all these, all their civil law was, was an extrapolation and an application of the moral law. So like, for instance, they had, they had one law where they had to put what's called a parapet or a, or a fence basically around the roofs of their homes. And this was in accordance with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And we would look into our own day and we'd say, okay, so, so how does that, so a parapet, what, what, you know, what does that mean? And you're right. Yeah. We don't go up on our roofs regularly to enjoy time out, you know, with friends, but what does this look like? Well, here in Pittsburgh, when it gets cold and it snows, the sixth commandment applies by shoveling the, the driveway, shoveling the, the, the sidewalks and salting the roads that is a way to preserve life. So we look at the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. That's the negative. The positive is you shall preserve life. And so you do those things that positively protect life, which is in accordance with the sixth commandment. And so when we look at Israel's civil law, their law for the parapet is just an, ex an expounding of that command. So anyway, so we see that the law is very useful uh, we see that the law has three uses now, primarily for for really for the Christian, but not the Christian only for governments. And really, when we see the deter the deterioration of nations and of governments, we see them refusing to bend their knees to Christ. We see God's law thrown by the wayside. So, in a nutshell, that's that is how the moral law still applies today, and 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 why. I'm very thankful that the moral law, the Ten Commandments given for us. I'm, I'm so glad that I don't have to wonder what it is that one, my God is like, because the Ten Commandments reveal to us his character and also what he requires of me. It's concrete. I don't have to guess and I'll, I'll still get it wrong. And I'm thankful for forgiveness and mercy and grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. But this is also something that we take we learn, we learn to repent from when we disobey, 
we also concretely teach these to our children. And Lord willing that these would just perpetuate through society and, you know, that we would really write God's law in our heart and that we would live by it. And when we fail to, we would faithfully trust that Jesus perfectly obeyed that law and gave us the Holy Spirit, that we would grow in sanctification and be able to obey it and know it and teach it to our children and teach it in our churches and never waver and never back down. It's clear, it's concise, and it is still applicable today. So thanks for that explanation, Nick. And Nick, I'm really looking forward to the first commandment. I'm looking forward to covering all of these with you. And I hope you are a listener, that you are as well, and that this has edified you and equipped you to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel and humble in living out the Ten Commandments. Yeah, so I, we appreciate you guys listening to this uh, this primer to get us ready to go through the Ten Commandments. We are very hopeful and prayerful that it will be wildly applicable, uh, not only to our own lives, but also to our own day. There's a lot going on now where people are really just disregarding God, and we need to be a people who wholeheartedly regard Him and seek what He would have us do in any and every circumstance. And in, in, in a lot of ways, that begins with understanding God's law and seeing it rightly and seeking to obey it out of a sincere love for Christ. Well, I guess with that, I'll close us out. Thanks for listening to the Reformed and Confessional podcast. If you'd like to hear more, you can go to reformconfess.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you would, uh, listen, we really would love your reviews. Uh, if this has been helpful for you and you found this to be edifying and beneficial, uh, could you please leave us a review on, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you're listening to this, that way people can find this more easily and be helped just as you are. Thank you guys very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.